Our text for today comes from Mark 1, 35 to 39. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, it's good to have everybody here this morning. I just, uh, before we get into it, I'd just like to say uh, it is March. Um, and that uh, over the next five weeks, technically, we have about five weeks until Easter. I just want to encourage you, if you have any friends in your life who don't have a place uh, that they call home, a church home, um, to just be inviting, thinking about inviting them to church over the next couple of weeks. This springtime uh this springtime kind of gap is a really great opportunity uh, to invite people kind of into the life of our church and to see what we're all about. Today is spring break, which is why we're missing, you know, 20 some odd college students. But um, just as a just as a uh, just an encouragement, uh, our our egg hunt is a great thing to uh, be inviting people to. Easter is a wonderful time to invite your friends to church if they are not in the habit of doing that. Um, and I think it's going to be a really rich time for us as a church. So just an encouragement. All right. All right. So I wanted to start off with a little self-assessment this morning. You can grab a piece of paper if it's in front of you, or you can grab your bulletin. Uh, So on the paper in front of you, on a scale of 1 to 10, I want you to write down your stress level, not now, but this week. What was your average stress level this week from 1 to 10? 1 being no stress, 10 being nuclear war, right? What was your stress level this week? Just one second. All right. So I'm not going to ask anyone to share this, so you don't have to, you're not going to be forced to raise your hand. Uh, But I just want you to take a mental inventory with me of your stress level over the past week. Uh, Now, I'm assuming that everyone in this room has a number over one, right? I'm assuming if you have a number that is one or two, well, congratulations. If you have a number that is like nine or ten, we have an ambulance waiting for you outside uh, if you need it. But I'm assuming, uh, just an assumption, that most everybody in the room probably has a number over five. You would rate your stress level this week as being above average, right? Most of us probably would. And I think that is something that in our culture, in modern American society, is pretty common, actually. I think stress is something we talk about a lot. Uh, I think it's something we talk about maybe even a lot more than we used to. Uh, Stress is this thing that kind of comes over us in waves. And I see it in people as a pastor, as a pastor of this church, as just somebody who's paying attention out in culture. It seems that the stress level, or at least the, the amount that people are communicating about their stress level, is kind of going up. My wife shared an NPR story with me uh, a couple weeks ago. Well, she was talking to me about it, about this gentleman. He's a, he's a researcher, and he, he talks about how in American society, we really only need to work about 20 hours a week now due to technology and things of that nature, which some of you go, oh, okay, really? Uh, let's figure that out. But, uh, but he says we have chosen to not, not uh, work less, but rather to work more, 
and to actually, once we get, and once we get uh, a certain amount of economic stability, to then pay people to do the routine things like our laundry or mow our lawns or... Uh, I, I hope you don't have anybody like brushing your teeth like Prince Charles or something. But um, that would be weird if you had somebody to do that for you. But, uh, but he says, we, we do all of this. We, we work so that we can work more. And that this is contributing to our stress level. And everything around us, I think, is contributing to it as well. Technolo the technology that is promised to make our lives easier and more streamlined, right, has actually led to us being more stressed more aware, more on, kind of all of the time. And you feel this in the world, don't you? That the world is breeding this kind of compulsiveness that causes, causes most of us to always feel like we have to do more, that we have more entertainment we need to consume, that we have to get, that there's more cable news that we need to get worked up over, that there are more chores at the house that need to be done, more Facebook, more Instagram, whatever. There's just always more. There's always something else to do. And if you're like me, sometimes you daydream about throwing your cell phone in a river and finding a nice potato farm in Idaho, right? And just retiring and tending the ground, <laughs> tending the soil. Now, the reason that this little stress test is important is, important, is that I think our kind of corporate cultural stress level points not to just something that's wrong materially in our world, but rather to a spiritual reality that we're all dealing with. And I just want to make it really plain. That spiritual reality, and we have it up on the screen for you this morning, is that modern American culture is not a spiritually or emotionally healthy environment. I don't think that's a particularly um, controversial statement to make, but to actually see it and actually keep it in front of our heads is an interesting thought, right? That the predominant culture in America is neither spiritually nor emotionally healthy. So the water we swim in every day is not a healthy place, right? I don't think it's, I don't think it's controversial, but when we see it like that, it's kind of stark, isn't it? We are living in a culture that is making us stressed, discouraged, depressed, anxious, all of it. And if we, as people, simply go with the flow of the predominant movement of our world, we will not get healthier. We will go in the opposite direction. We will not grow to become emotionally mature adults. And in some ways... This is how things have always been, right? The world, is, there was never a time, even though some of us might think, oh, there was a time when everybody had a white picket fence and the church was within walking distance and, you know, the milkman came and put glass bottles on your front step. Um, as much as we think that there, there might have been an idyllic time in our past, this is how the world has always been. And for millennia, Jesus and other wise Christian teachers have been talking to us about this fact. That to just kind of go with the flow of our culture, what the Bible often refers to as the world, will not make us more like Jesus. Actually, the opposite of that will happen. And Jesus is very clear about this as well, isn't he? In fact, Jesus says that there is a way of living where we can actually attain the very highest of worldly achievement, 
We can gain the whole world but lose our soul. This is a fundamental teaching of Jesus. The writer and pastor Henry Nouwen says it this way in a really good book called The Way of the Heart that I would encourage you to write down and get. But he says this, Our society is not a a community radiant with the love of Christ, but a dangerous work of dom- uh, network of domination and manipulation in which we can easily lose our souls. We started out real positive today on, on St. Patrick's Day, didn't we? But the danger, I think, of that our culture poses to our hearts is not always what I think we think it is. Because when we think of the danger that culture or the world poses to us, what we often think is the kind of external sins, the stuff we can see. But I think most of the influence that the world has on our hearts and on our minds is subtle. It dwells in some sense within us. It's cultural. It's in our hearts. For me growing up, all of the, when we talked about the world as something to be avoided, we we tended to talk about all the external stuff, smoking and drinking and sex and R-rated movies and this type of stuff. And if you could avoid those, you're fine, right? You've got it all pretty good. It's all stuff that the Pharisees can judge, right? And that stuff is definitely sinful and it corrodes our souls, But when the Bible talks about the threat of the world, it's talking about something much more subtle, insidious even, that goes beyond the external, has, has something to do with the very way in which the world or our culture functions. It has this way of getting its hooks in us in ways that we can't even see at times. And it's important that we realize that the general flow of our culture is one that is moving in a way that is not intended to keep us healthy or whole or holy. It is to keep us uh, in a different, it is to put us into a different direction. And to be a Jesus follower is to be one who flows against the current of our predominant culture in every culture in the world. Now, this is not to say that there aren't redeeming factors to our culture. There's a lot of things that in, in culture that are completely value-neutral or good, right? But, that, but it is to say that the predominant move of our culture is not towards the kingdom. It is rather, in some sense, away. Now, the same author that I quoted earlier, Henry Nouwen, talks about the, kind, the sin of the world that can kind of creep into our heart, that can creep into our souls. He describes it as a kind of compulsiveness, which I think is a really good description. And here's what he says. He says, whether I am a, a pianist or a businessman or a minister, what matters is how I am perceived by the world. If being busy is a good thing, then I must be busy. If having money is a sign of important, or sorry, if is a sign of real freedom, then I must claim my money. If knowing many people proves my importance, then I will make the necessary contacts. The compulsion manifests itself in a lurking fear of failing and the step, uh, and the step urge to, pre- uh, to prevent this by gathering more of the same, more work, more money, more friends. This is the compulsion of our world, isn't it? This is the compulsion of American society, simply for more, for more. And, it, and if you really boil that down, I think, what it sounds like to me, and think, I, I think the way it works itself out in our lives, 
is stress. Is stress. Because there is always more to do. There is always more to attain. There is always another kid who is running out, running out the door without pants on that needs pants, right? Is that just my house? Um, uh, there's always more. And that more that we think that we need to uh, deal with, that, that more that we feel like we need to attain, just causes us stress and burden. It breaks us down, doesn't it? It breaks down our hearts, and it makes us less emotionally healthy. And many of us would kind of just shrug this off and go, Nick, this is just the way things are. This is normal life, right? Like, there's always a lot to do, and I'm just going to do it, and I'm going to bear my, and I'm going to grit my teeth, and I'm going to bear down, and I'm going to make it happen, whatever it takes. And that works, I think, for a while. It does. We're, we, are, we are capable human beings. We have the ability to, to bear down and handle a lot of stuff. But you and I do not have the ability in our own strength to resist the full force of the world crashing down on our heads. And if we just try to bear up under it and work and achieve and play the game that is uh, the system of achievement and more in our culture, we will be crushed. Have you ever seen those surfers that surf big waves in Hawaii? I just watched a documentary about it that was really fun. I stayed up too late to watch a documentary about surfers in the ocean, a place that I've been in one time in my life. Um, these guys would get crushed by these huge waves, you know, and they'd look like they were riding pretty well for a second, and then all of a sudden, whoop, and then they might die, right? I think this is the way we are when we ride the wave of our culture. We might look nice for a second. We might seem like we're, we're, like we're skirting the problems for a moment. But eventually, the wave's going to catch us. And so, what do we do? What do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that, the, uh, that our predominant culture is not one that makes us more healthy, is not one that leads us to Christ, is not one that uh, lends to minds and hearts that are renewed and joyful, right? You know, Jesus has a solution for this, and it's himself. Following Jesus and, and patterning, patterning our lives after his way of life is a way to get out from the corrosive, corrosive effects of this compulsiveness, this busyness, this anxiety, this stress, this anger, this greed that our, that our culture kind of just runs off of. And this is what it means to have an emotionally healthy spirituality, what we've been talking about over the last number of weeks. It means allowing the good news of Jesus and the love of God to sink down deep into our hearts and transform what we do, how we feel, and the way we think, and to also help us run upstream against the predominant patterns of our world, of our culture, that are keeping our hearts broken, keeping us kind of rent into pieces, are keeping us stressed. And luckily for us, Jesus models a way of life, and he actually gives us some concrete practices that help us to disentangle ourselves from sin patterns and habits in this world. You didn't know that. Maybe you did, but he does. He gives us some concrete things to do, actually. Ways to disciple our hearts and to learn to live freely and to love God more. He gives us patterns, habits. 
Daniel covered two of these patterns and habits last week. They're often called spiritual disciplines. Uh, Daniel covered uh, the, the spiritual discipline of Scripture, of, of reading the Scriptures on a regular, daily, routine way, and also of prayer in a regular, routine way. This is what Daniel covered. And this week, I want to dig into two, two more practices that are, that are similar to prayer and Scripture reading and can often involve them, but I want to dig specifically into uh, the disciplines of silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. Can I just take another survey? Has anybody ever heard a sermon on being quiet and being by yourself? If you have one, two, three. Good. Most of you, or four. Good. Most of you, this is a new thing. I'm the only one who's ever given this message. Um, silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. Now, uh, If you read through the story of Jesus in the Gospels, what you will quickly come to realize is Jesus had a rhythm or a pattern in his life uh, in between these really intense times of ministry where he was like healing people and preaching and doing miracles and having these really emotionally charged and kind of hostile conversations at times with people who were really suspicious of him and sometimes wanted him dead. He had these rhythms in between those periods in time where he was interacting with people where he would draw away from the kind of hustle and bustle of his culture and he would attend to his relationship with God. He would find a silent and solitary place and this was a regular pattern in his life. We read it from in our teaching text today in Mark uh, beginning in the verse 35. Very early in the morning while it was still dark Jesus got up left the house and went off to a What? Solitary. Other translations might call that a lonely place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, right? Jesus, where are you? Why aren't you where we thought you should be? And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you, right? If you read through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus does this time and time and time again. He's intentionally finding silence and solitude in order to attend to the voice and influence of his father in his life rather than the voice of his culture, rather than all of the voices that are kind of swirling around him. Jesus, uh, I just want to make this explicit, the Son of God, the the second person of the Trinity, Fully God and fully man needed extended times of silence and solitude in order to live into his God-given mission and destiny. So why don't we? So why don't we? And ba- but based on this example that Jesus gives us, Christians have for thousands of years emphasized the vital role that the spiritual practices or rhythms of silence and solitude should play in caring for our souls. In caring for our souls. Just like Jesus needed silence and solitude, I need in my life windows of silence and solitude in order to live the way of Jesus well. In order to learn to kind of decouple my heart from, from the pervasive sins of our world, from our culture, that threaten my soul. I need it. So for the remainder of this morning, what we're going to do is talk about silence and solitude. Yay, right? This is going to be so much fun. We're going to talk about silence and solitude and how we can, what they are and how we can practice it and what it looks like to involve silence and solitude into the regular rhythms of your life because we need it. And I don't think anybody, no one I've ever talked to who's like in the 
you know, they're, in, they're on their grind every week. They're working hard. They're doing stuff. When I say, you know what you could use? You could use some extended period of silence and solitude in your life. None of them go, no, I don't need that at all. Right? I've never had a conversation with somebody who's like, nope, I'm fine. Usually what they say is, how am I supposed to do that? It'd be great, but how am I supposed to do that? So that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning. So, I'm, but, and just uh, to combat the culture that we live in now, the, the kind of the always on, always moving, uh, 24-hour news cycle culture that we live in now, I think silence and solitude, other than prayer and scripture reading, are the two most vital practices for the Christian church in America. I really believe that. How countercultural does a, does, a, uh, does a community of Christ followers look if they embrace this practice on a regular basis? That's crazy. It'll look crazy to a lot of people, but it, it makes our souls healthy. So first, solitude. Solitude. If you're taking notes, I have a, a working definition for solitude up on the screen there. Solitude is the practice of being absent from people and, and things in order to attend to God. It's a practice of being absent from people and things in order to attend to God. Jesus was a busy man. He went around his entire world healing and preaching. Something we don't often think about about Jesus is that he had no home base. He didn't have a home to go back to. He was an itinerant preacher. He traveled around uh, the Middle East, basically. He was living off the generosity of other people. He had some wealthy women who were kind of his proprietors, not his proprietors, but whatever that word is, uh, and both before and after every public action in Jesus' life, he withdrew to a solitary place, a lonely place, so that he could be alone with his father. Now, he did this in all kinds of ways. Sometimes he was like, hey, guys, get that boat ready. I'm going to put it out in the middle of the water so that nobody can come see me, right? He did that so that he could be alone. Other times he found a mountaintop. Jesus would cli routinely climb up a mountain just to be by himself. Before he launched into his public ministry, he went out into the desert by himself for 40 days just to be alone and attend to the things of God in that place. Before his crucifixion, Jesus withdraws to the Garden of Gethsemane to be alone with God. And he was really alone because his buddies fell asleep. Solitude was this regular routine practice in the life of Jesus. Jesus needed it, and we need it. Jesus uh, chose to find solitude often early in the morning or late at night because that's when people aren't often around, when people are asleep. But he always prized it as a kind of necessity in his life. So to help us this morning understand what solitude is and how it should function in our life, I just have three quick things. Uh, one thing that solitude is not, and then two things that it is. So the first thing that solitude is not this morning is solitude is not simply rest, right? Solitude is about ceasing. It is about stopping to do things, but it is not about, it is not just resting or recharging our batteries, all right? The Christians have a practice that is, that is intentionally built into our days to rest. It's called the Sabbath. We're supposed to build that as a regular, an, again, another habit, a routine. One day out of every seven where we rest, right? So that is already a practice. But solitude, and solitude can be restful. 
It can be restful, but sometimes it is not. Sometimes solitude is not. Um, we see this in Jesus' life. When he withdraws to the Garden of Gethsemane, when he goes to the desert, right, before his public ministry, these were not necessarily restful times. In solitude, we do not simply relax, and we most certainly do not simply distract ourselves with Netflix or movies or whatever. Actually, in solitude, we intentionally pull all of the things away that, that do commonly distract us in order to attend to what really matters. We put aside that which distracts us, which keeps us thinking about all the things we need to do, and we, atten- we, when, and we intentionally attend to what God has for our souls. And while this is good for us, while it's mandatory for us, it is not always restful. It's not always restful. And that leads us to the second point. It is not always restful because solitude is about confrontation. I don't know if we expect this one, but it's true. Solitude is a place of confrontation because in solitude, we are faced, we are forced to face our true selves. We can't hide behind our busy lives and our emails and our Facebooks and the lawn that needs to be mowed. We are faced before God with who we really are. And many of us choose to distract ourselves so that we don't have to face what's actually inside of us. If I can't be alone with God, right, part of the reason for that is probably because I'm afraid of who I am and what God is going to reveal on the inside of me. I don't want to allow this, God the space in my life to root out of me all the stuff that, that needs to be rooted out of me in order for me to be the healthy person that God wants me to be. Oftentimes we, we run away from the place of solitude because we believe that God is kind of like a lumberjack and he's going to start, as soon as we get in that place, he's going to kind of start hacking at our hearts. But the truth of the matter is, is that many of us are afraid of the place of solitude because we have a faulty picture of who God is. God is not a lumberjack. He's not Paul Bunyan. He's not going to chop you in two. God is more like an adept surgeon who understands and loves us and who does want to do surgery on us and does want to put us in a place where he can do that work on our hearts. But he will do it in love and he will do that in a warm embrace knowing that the work that God wants to do in our lives will help us to flourish. You know, the place of solitude is a place of confrontation, but it's also a place of great grace as we allow God to kind of peel back the layers of the onion of our lives and reveal the truth of who we are and then heal that, and then heal that as as we step into his presence. And this is why, while, while solitude is a place of confrontation, where we confront ourselves, where we actually deal with the brokenness that is in our hearts, it's also a place of transformation, which is point three. Time alone is where our old self goes to die. It is also where God uh, constructs the new nature of the kingdom of God in our hearts. This is what, this is what happens in, so- in solitude. This is what Dallas Willard says about it. He says, In drawing aside for lengthy periods of time, we seek to rid ourselves of the corrosion of our souls that accrues from constant interaction with others and the world around us. 
In this place of quiet communion, we discover again that we do have souls, that we indeed have inner beings to be nurtured. Then we begin to experience again the presence of God in the inner sanctuary, speaking to and interacting with us. We understand anew that God will not compete for our attention. He must, we must arrange time for our communion with him as we draw aside in solitude and silence. It is, it is in the solitary place that we allow God the space to renew and remake us. If we just keep running and we just keep doing, we will not be renewed and restored. And that is why solitude is such a vital, vital thing. And here at the end, we'll talk a little bit about practically how we do this. But that's solitude. The second discipline is silence. Our working definition for silence this morning, we have that up there, I believe, is silence is the practice of uh, quieting every inner and outer voice to attend to God. This is what silence is. And now, personally, this is probably the most important discipline for me. That's uh, one I try to practice often. Uh, part of that is because I talk for a living, <laughs> and it's good to be quiet sometimes. But it also is because silence is a practice that both deepens and kind of completes solitude. If you're by yourself, if you're in solitude, silence is a, is a close companion to solitude, which is why we keep these two together. And we, again, we see this, this discipline of silence as a really important tool in the hands of Jesus to renew and restore our souls. In the Gospels, we have many examples of Jesus uh, speaking, but we also have tons of examples of Jesus remaining silent, of Jesus using words sparingly, as Jesus is being questioned before his crucifixion. Very often, he chooses simply not to speak. Throughout his ministry, Jesus seems really quick uh, uh, I'm sorry, really quick to pick his spots when he speaks. He doesn't seem to force his way into conversations. And there always seems to be a significance behind his words, birthed out of a place of silence and prayer. And in the scriptures, the scriptures are just full and full and full about how important our, si our words are and how dangerous our words are and how valuable si silence can be to us given the fact that our words are so powerful. Here's just a smattering of them. They're not on the screen, uh, but you can hear. So this is literally one, this four or five verses of hundreds. There's so many in the scriptures about the danger of speaking too much. In Psalm uh, 39.1, it says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, huh? so long as the wicked are in my presence. Psalm 141.3, set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Proverbs 10.19, sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. 1 Peter 3.10, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from de deceitful speech. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And in a world that is so full of words, 
that there, where people are vying for a platform to speak all over the place. We drive by billboards, and we have podcasts, and we have television, and we have the radio, and we have uh, a myriad of forms of verbal communication that are all around us. This so much of this language is caustic. So much of this language is offensive. So much of this language is just about the loudest and the most violent speaking person seems to get top billing, right? Silence is a kind of rebellion against all of that. It is. And so just a few things on silence this morning. Number one, silence helps us to hear God in, the same, in a similar way that solitude does. Because we live in a noisy world, don't we? We live in a noisy world. I was actually at lunch with Cole this week, and he talked about going fishing up north and it being in a really remote place where it's so quiet, and it take, took him like a week to get used to it, right? Have you, ever, have you ever been in a quiet place like that? It's like, what am I supposed to do with this? And then when you get back into town, it's just like everyone's yelling at you, right? After you've been in the woods for a few days. We are surrounded by voices communicating all manner of things. And all of the things that they are communicating are working their way into our heart. You can't be bombarded with all of these messages and all of these ideas and all of these words and not be in some way, shape, and form affected by those things. You know, we're always being told by culture to love this or hate this, to like this or buy this. This is what successful is. Worship me. We're well, getting these messages all the time. It's constant. And if we want to hear the voice of God in the midst of that carass of stuff, we need to silence ourselves and we need to draw into a silenter place. We need to pull away from the voices of our world so that we can attend to the voice of God. Silence is so key in this. And so what this often involves is just turning off the radio, but it does often also involve closing our mouths because we need to hear God. God can and sometimes does break through the, the din of our culture, the loud kind of banging nature of our culture. But God wants us to find a place of silence so that we can attend to his voice. And in that place, he will speak to us. So silence helps us hear God, number one. Number two, silence helps us guard the fire within. Who's got a fire within? Uh, so I, uh, silence is really important for me, like I said, because I tend to talk a lot in my normal life. I talk a lot. I, I, I make a joke that I don't know really anything Ashley does during a day in her working life. As, you know, that's the stuff she does. But she literally knows everything I do every day. Like, I, I give her a rundown of like, okay, then I, then I did this, and then I ate this, and then <laughs> it's very minute. And then I turned the heat up. I, I run her through my whole day. Not because I feel, not because I feel uh, like a compulsion to do that, but just because I have a lot of words that I need to get out every day, it feels like. And I, I came to a realization, particularly when I was in college, that if there was a discussion going on in class, I had this compulsion, again, in my heart, that I had to get some words into that discussion, that I had to be a part of it, that I had to have my voice heard. It was a compulsion, and it was a corrosive thing in my heart. And so what I realized was that I needed to be quiet. So for like two months, I didn't say anything in class unless I was asked a direct question. If I was asked a direct question, I wouldn't go, mm, no, mm. 
I would actually answer that question because I'm not a jerk. But, uh, but, I, but I chose to remain silent because I needed to wean my heart off of this desire to have my voice be a prominent one in the classroom all of the time. And, and today, I have, there are times in my life where I have to practice that same discipline of being quiet, of not thinking that my voice is the, has to get into every conversation or, is an imp- or has an important perspective. Because on, in a kind of, uh, in, in a, if you, in a, from a 10,000-foot view, my voice is not that important, right? In the economy of God's kingdom, like, my voice is not that important. And so I have to have to spend these times where I intentionally kind of choose to be quiet and I choose to keep it in. And if we and if we always leave the door open, so to speak, if we always keep talking, we're never going to speak out of a place of uh, of significance. Have you ever met anybody whose mouth is always running, but nothing significant is ever coming out? Yes, you have. I hope you're not going that guy up on the stage with a microphone in his hand. I've met people like this. I remind myself of that type of person from time to time. And part of the reason we have to remain silent is that we need to guard the fire in our hearts. If we are saying everything we are thinking, the scriptures tell us two things. One, that we are probably sinning in ways that we're not even aware of. And two, that we are not guarding the deposit that God has made in our hearts. There's this beautiful analogy that I, in that book that I've referenced, The Way of the Heart, Henry Nouwen. He talks, he talks about our hearts as though they are a house. And he says, if the front door of our house is always open, it's never going to be warm inside. Does this make sense? And so what we need to do is kind of close the door, allow the fire to warm the inside of the house, and then occasionally let people inside. This is what it means to guard the deposit or the fire within our hearts. This is what it means to be a person who guards the deposits that God has made in our lives. And very often when we hear something or learn something, we want to run and tell people as quickly as we can about that thing. But oftentimes the way that 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 deposit, that word that maybe God has given us, takes on its full form is that when we keep it close to our hearts. Do you remember when the angel appears to Mary and says to Mary, Mary, you're going you're gonna to give birth to the Savior, to the Messiah. And the scriptures say that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. What she didn't do <laughs> was run out and go, guess what, guys? Right? Somebody's pregnant with the Savior of the world. Right? She didn't do this. She treasured these things in her, hearts, in her heart, and she did not speak. Now, there are things we need to speak. Very often, the things we need to speak are our own faults or our own brokenness so that we can receive healing in community. But very often, we need, to, we need to kind of treasure the things that God speaks to us in our hearts and guard the fire within. I heard one pastor, I heard one pastor say one time that um, the thing we should be quickest with to offer up is our brokenness, and the thing we should keep to ourselves the most is the good things about us. Because that's a way of guarding the fire within. Silence has this way of both combating the kind of predominant culture of more words, more stuff, more voices, more anger, more vitriol. But it also has this way of helping us to tend to, the, to our own hearts and to the, the words that God has given us. It's a beautiful, beautiful practice. So, with our last couple of minutes, how do we do it? 
how do we practice silence and solitude in our own lives? I have a couple ideas. Do you want to hear them? No. Okay, we'll leave. So the first one, and this is really practical. Uh, turn off the TV for 30 or, f- 30 or 45 minutes before you go to bed. Turn it off. Don't have any voices in your life. Don't, don't, you don't need constant input. Just be quiet and still. I have two little kids, soon to be three little kids, and there are times when it feels like my house is just shaking at its foundation. Some of you are going, Nick, your kids are, are not the problem. My kids are the problem. They're crazy. Uh, I know, but it feels like they're, they're shaking. At, it feels like our house is shaking at times. But at other times, like, I don't know what will happen. Like, a, a, they'll be playing in their rooms or something good will come on the television, and the house will just go quiet, right? And it's this beautiful, peaceful moment. And then the dog, dog will bark at the mailman, and it'll all be ruined. But uh, so what are some concrete ways that you can practice silence and solitude? Turn off the television for uh, 30 or 45 minutes before you go to bed. Don't, if you have a TV in your bedroom, don't fall asleep with the TV on. That's so corrosive to your soul. Don't do it. I, I don't like to make statements and tell people what to do, but that's a true one. Just don't do that. It's not helpful. Turn off the radio on, in your car on the way into work. Just drive. Right? Just not all. You don't have to do it all the time. You can check the news or whatever, but don't listen to the, all the voices. If you're one of those people who gets really worked up when you listen to political radio, seriously, turn it off. <laughs> all right? If you can't handle it, don't do it. You don't need that. It's not, you know, the bill about whatever probably isn't going to affect you all that much, to be honest. But the quality of your heart will affect a lot in your day. Okay, another one. Choose not to talk at your next meeting unless somebody asks you a direct question. Don't put your two cents in. See how that goes. You want to know a secret? The, when we practice silence, we practice the reality of the world, which is that the world does not revolve around us, right? The, I, I can say this to you because I say it to myself a lot. The world does not revolve around you. If you remain quiet for two months of meetings, they might go, was Jesse at those meetings? Sorry, I used your word here. <laughs> was Jesse at those meetings? Right? If, if Cole remains quiet at his job, they might go, Cole was in a really good mood today, right? Because he was quiet. I had, this, uh, I had this friend in college who, uh, his name was Matt, and he uh, practiced silence in class, not because he was trying to tend to his soul, but because he was trying to get more skips, and he, would, he wouldn't talk. He was one of the smartest guys I know, but he wouldn't talk in class. We only had 10, we, we had a 10 allowed skips in college. And, and he... Uh, he wouldn't talk, and he got like 20 skips because the teacher never knew he was there. Just, just an added benefit. Uh, but pr- try not to talk. Try not to talk. Go for a walk on the trails, the beautiful trails in the Cedar Valley for one hour a week to be by yourself out in nature and invite God into that walk. It sounds hard. It sounds hard at times, but it, it's so good. Go camping, right? Get out 
into the world and intentionally choose spaces where you can be by yourself and, or silent. This is good for our souls. And I want to speak, as we conclude, to moms and dads, because I'm a dad and I'm married to a mom, and especially moms uh, hear this message and they go, okay, <laughs> how does that work? Uh, and what I, what I will say is, it's not easy. It's not easy. But there are ways of cultivating silence and solitude in your life that don't necessarily look like you being completely by yourself for an hour, all right? There, uh, the, one of the greatest examples of this was uh, John and Charles Wesley's mother. Uh, this woman was a woman of prayer, and she had this habit of, she had a, like a, a baking apron that she would wear very often, and when she was in a time of prayer, she would pull the apron up over her head, like at the kitchen table. It's a strange thing to do, I know. And she would dedicate, and, and for that moment, Charles and John and all of their brothers and sisters knew mom's by herself right now, right? Now, I'm not saying you need to pull random pieces of clothing over your head in the kitchen. What I am saying is there are ways, and you probably know them right now if you're a parent in this room, of cultivating a place of silence and a place of solitude in your life. Maybe it's that 10 minutes. Maybe it's that 30 minutes. Maybe it's that 15 minutes here or there. Maybe it's that 25 minutes when you make some coffee in the morning before anybody's up before you. I don't know what it is for you, but there is a way of cultivating that in your heart. And the beautiful thing about silence and solitude is as we get in the practice of doing this, we, we begin to learn how to do it even when people are around. We begin to learn how to cultivate a spirit of silence and solitude even when there are people in and around us. And so I just want to encourage you this week. This is spring break week in our town, so it's kind of sleepy around here. I know Ashley and I are driving to Missouri after church today, and I'm going to have a little bit more time maybe to myself uh, than I do at other times. And so I, I want to think, how do I, how do I intentionally set aside some time to be by myself and to be quiet so that I can attend to the voice of God in my life? Jesus teaches us that this is a necessity. It's a necessity for, for the health of our hearts. And so we need to do it. So as we go today, what I want you to do is just write down what are some ways that you in your life can, uh, can involve this spiritual practice, this discipline, this rhythm of silence and solitude into your life? How can you do it this week or this month or this year? There should be period, there should be weekly practices, sometimes daily practices. There should be monthly practices that we take on, and I think there should be yearly practices of both silence and solitude. Um, not everybody can do this. I understand this year I took a three-day silent retreat in Nebraska. I went and was quiet for the most part for three days, which is hard for me. All right? So that's a yearly practice. Uh, uh, the, the network of churches that this church is associated with have, has these beautiful mini cabins uh, right outside of Boone, in uh, Ogden and Boone, in a campground there. They have these beautiful mini cabins. They're really cheap. They overlook the Kate Shelley Bridge. You can rent one for very cheap in the night, and you can, or for a night, and you can go be by yourself out in the woods with nice amenities and decent coffee still, which is a must. Um, and, you can, and you can attend to your heart. And you can attend to your heart. This has to happen, guys. Because our world is a corrosive place. Our world is a corrosive place. And I know you feel it. And Jesus wants you to be free of that.
And he wants you to swim upstream in our culture and to be a light and to be healthy and to be holy and to be whole. Let's pray. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. And we ask that you would help us to step into these practices of silence and solitude. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us to be creative in the ways in which we uh, we involve silence and solitude in our lives this week and this month and this year. God, would you speak directly to those of us who are like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. And would you give us some insight into how we can, we can involve silence and solitude into our weekly, daily, monthly, yearly routine. Jesus, um, help us not to see silence and solitude as just another religious thing that we have to check off the list, but rather as a practice uh, that, that you use to help make our souls healthy. Help us to attend to the things that are most important in our lives. Help us to turn off the noise, the din of our culture that, that is always keeping us anxious and keeping us angry and keeping us greedy and keeping us going. And help us to attend to what really matters. Help us to know that we don't run the world, you do. And help us to lay down or lay aside those things that we carry as we step into a silent and solitary place so that we can be ministered to by your love. Jesus, help us to do that this week. Father, as we go from this place today, help us to carry your light and your love out into our world, out into the marketplace, out into wherever it is we're eating lunch. Jesus, would you be the center of our lives? We pray it all in your name. Amen and amen, and amen. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.